We've just sung that when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, him who made an end of all my sin. Father, that's my prayer that tonight, from this passage, you'll help us to lift our eyes off ourselves, off even our own needs here in the church, and look outwards. To look upwards to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the grace that you have shown us, and outwards to the needs of the wider world on this, our Mission Sunday. Please, Father, would grace compel us to do good. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I came across this following story in a, in a book about church productivity. Sort of thing pastors read. Here's the story. One year, New Year's Eve, I asked my minister a rather straightforward question. How many adults came to faith this year at our church? The minister, being a very diplomatic man, said, I'm not sure about that, I'll have to get back to you. But we both knew the answer. It was zero. I edited up. That year, our church had conducted 104 regular services, seven special services, 250 adult classes, 600 committee meetings, 1,000 small group meetings, and ran through a $750,000 budget to produce exactly zero new converts of Jesus Christ. In the parable of the sower, Christ promised his followers a hundredfold crop, but our church hadn't even reaped a onefold crop. We gathered, we worshipped, we loved one another, but we produced no fruit. We were like one of those Rube Goldberg contraptions you see on YouTube. Lots of sound, lots of motion, lots of potential, just not much fruit. I don't know what you make of that story. We might object to a somehow somewhat narrow definition of fruit. We might remind him it's the Lord who produces the converts, not us. He might be wondering what on earth is a Rube Goldberg contraption. But still he raises a good point, doesn't he? Why is it that some ministries rarely see anyone coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ? This is clearly Paul's concern as he closes out this letter to Titus. Notice if you look down with me in verse 8. Paul describes a form of ministry in verse 8 which is profitable for everyone. Both people in the church and out of the church. Profitable for everyone. But then in verse 9... He describes other forms of ministry which are unprofitable and useless. Paul's concern here isn't in in terms of financial profitability. We're not a business, are we? No, he's concerned that, that the ministry we're engaged in, whether it does any real good, good in us to make us more like Christ, good in our church as we encourage one another in ministry, but more importantly, good for those we're trying to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are we? Am I? Are you engaged in profitable ministry? Well, first we need to take a glimpse at the sort of ministry Paul wants us to avoid. It's our first point if you're following on your sheets. Unprofitable ministry debates and divides. Look down with me at verse 9. Verse 9. But avoid 
foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Now, if you've been with us throughout this series, you'll remember that the church in Crete has been infiltrated by false teachers, legalists. They insisted that God's grace is not enough to save us. Instead, you've got to be circumcised and you've got to observe various Jewish food laws. And only then might God forgive you and accept you. Now, these teachers, they would have been really persuasive. We can imagine them staying up late, poring over really niche, detailed points of scripture, perhaps the Jewish laws speculating about this and that, making theological mountains out of molehills. We can uh, picture them poring over long genealogical records and family trees, uh, trying to prove their own Jewish ancestry and the purity of it, and therefore their deserved rank and status in the church. But the shock here in verse 9 is that Paul's not talking about the false teachers. Paul's concern is that Titus himself would be lured into this pattern of ministry. And if it's a temptation for Titus, then it will be a temptation for us, won't it? Perhaps in the same way these legalists might make much of their own genealogies. Also, we might be tempted to make a lot about our backgrounds and and our connections. As though that somehow establishes our importance or our pedigree. So, I don't know, in conversation over a meal, we're not, we might slip in all the famous churches we've been at, all these important camps we've served on, all these Christian celebrities we might rub shoulders with or maybe are related to. If we're doing that, we, we might subconsciously divide the church into the important, connected elites and then the not-so-important, unconnected Joe Schmoes divides the church. Or perhaps in the same way that the legalists love quarreling about the Jewish law. Maybe, I don't know, maybe we've been in small groups where all people are interested in are debating over those controversial bits. They love straining gnats as they debate and tussle over the fine points of detail. I've been in groups like that. But ask these people, what's warmed your heart from this passage? They've got nothing. I ask them, how do you want to change in response to this passage? And they flounder. Sometimes I've noticed people use theological debate as like a defense mechanism. It's a way to keep God's word well away from doing any actual change in their hearts and in their lives. Well, in churches like ours, I think, which, which rightly take teaching and preaching the scriptures seriously, we've got to do that. But there's always a danger in churches like ours that that we make a knowledge of the Bible almost an end in itself. It's head, but not heart. It's inner debate, but not inner renewal. It looks impressive, but really, according to verse 9, it's unprofitable and useless. See, throughout this letter, Paul has been stressing one thing, hasn't he? God's grace. God's undeserved love. And he's been doing that because he knows just how attractive legalism is to each of us. See, if we're deriving our our sense of importance or self-worth from knowing more than other people, or 
or doing more than other people or perhaps being more connected than other people. If that's where we're looking to justify ourselves, then we're not going to be looking to God. Instead, we'll just bring division to the fellowship we've been saved into. And friends, this is serious enough to warrant this warning there in verse 10. Did you see it? Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. I don't know what you make of those verses. At first glance, they might seem slightly unkind. Should, oh, come on, shouldn't we all be it together? I'm sure we want, we want reconciliation and unity. And Of course, those are all good things. But Paul's words here, taken directly from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Matthew 18, he's the most loving man who ever lived. And there Jesus says, sometimes we need to discipline. Notice the primary aim in this verse is not removal, but reconciliation and restoration. That the divisive individual might return once again to the gospel of grace. That's why they're given three warnings rather than, you know, just straight out. But if these successive warnings one two three if they're ignored then the person brings condemnation upon themselves out of a love for the church they've got to be removed otherwise they'll just they'll just destroy the fellowship and bring further division now throughout the ages doctors and, and surgeons had to make similar calls i know a number of some medics here maybe you've had to make similar hard decisions uh, when you come across someone maybe maps who has an infection of course, the best thing to do is to treat that infection straight away, isn't it? You, you want to help the person. But somehow, it, sometimes if, if the infection has set in and gangrene has spread up the limb, sometimes the most kindest and loving thing to do is to amputate. It's not pretty. It's not what anyone really wants, but it's, it's the best thing. Otherwise, if the rot spreads, it can just kill the whole body. So friends, please pray for your church leaders, both ministers and bishops that we would have the courage to do this sort of work. Both preemptively as we say hard things and warn people in the pulpit, but also on those few occasions when we need to go and take action. And in the past few years, I've had to do that. I've had to take people out for coffee and warn them uh, and say, look, we, we can't do this. We can't, we can't teach this. We can't think this. Uh, and wonderfully, they've been restored into the fellowship. This sort of thing, it's not popular. It doesn't win us friends. It's not pretty. But it's the most loving thing to do, both for the individual, in order that they might be restored, but also in order that the church might be protected from error. So that's unprofitable ministry. It debates and it divides. But now Paul turns to profitable ministry, which, which propels and provides. I'm very happy with those headings this week. It took me half a week to work them out. Look down with me at verse 12. As soon as I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to spend the winter there. Now, I find this quite surprising, don't you? Paul has spent the entire letter carefully laying out his strategy to Titus, telling him how he can transform Crete through the proclamation of the gospel of grace. But now he ends the letter by telling his star player to move elsewhere. He wants Titus to leave Crete 
and when uh, either Artemis or Tychicus arrived to replace him. I find that surprising. We, we, it seems kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it, to, to, to kingdom growth on the island. It, we might wonder how, how this plan will result in more profitable ministry. Seems like a bizarre move. And perhaps we feel the same way, I don't know, when, when we hear people are moving on from St. John's. Maybe we hear that this family or that family are moving elsewhere, perhaps like the Brewers. And, and maybe our heart sinks because we're, we're close to them. Or maybe because they're, they're serving in key ministries. Then moving away, it might seem counterintuitive to kingdom growth. We wonder how this will result in profitable ministry. Well, I reckon this verse, we easily skip over it, but it's a helpful reminder that we're not the only gig in town. That God's kingdom is larger than the island of Crete. In fact, it's larger than St. John's Downshire Hill. It's a profitable thing for churches to be willing to send out their best. Because there are whole mission fields out there which need gospel workers. Scotland needs gospel workers. Elsewhere needs gospel workers. Now, we don't quite know how Titus would have responded to verse 12. We're not told. We're not given the response letter. It might be Titus knew this was the plan all along. Or maybe Titus was really gutted to learn he'll be replaced by Tychicus or Artemis. But there's no room for ego in ministry. It's not about Titus. He's being called to serve the gospel elsewhere. And that's what he'll do. I can think of a number of families who uh, could well be leaving us soon, and no doubt they'll be dearly, dearly missed. But as we as a church propel them outwards, uh, let's remember that our loss is another church's gain. That the kingdom of God is larger than this building here. Let's not be so parochial in our thinking. In fact, we see this principle repeated there in verse 13. Look, Look down with me again. Verse 13. Do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, and see that they have everything they need. Now these two men were the missionaries Paul had used to deliver this letter to the island of Crete. Now we don't know much about Zenos, other than the fact he's a lawyer, but we do know a lot about Apollos from the other letters in the New Testament. And what we know about Apollos is that he's an extraordinarily gifted preacher. He really was one of Paul's best guys. And yet Paul was willing to propel him outwards that these Cretans might benefit from his ministry. But it seems their arrival is also an opportunity for the church. Titus is told, isn't he, to make sure these missionaries are well looked after, uh, that they have everything they need as they journey onwards to share the gospel in other places. But, But how will they be looked after? How will their needs be met? Well, verse 14 is tells us how and it's very important verse 14 our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for their the missionaries daily necessities and not live unproductive lives now if you've been with us over the past six weeks we'd have seen this phrase the good repeated over and over again haven't we i think about 10 times it comes up in the letter and most most time the letter it's referring the good refers to our godliness uh, sometimes it refers to our, our witness to, to outsiders but here in verse 14 doing what is good is very specific 
It refers to the practical, daily provision of gospel workers. That they might continue to spread the good news of Jesus Christ elsewhere. I wonder if it's worth us asking ourselves, is is this a concern of ours? To, To practically and financially provide for gospel ministry. Whether here at at St. John's, the ministry you benefit from, or or, or wider, as we heard from Hattie earlier on. Because notice from verse 14, this is not an optional extra for the super keen Christian. Verse 14 says, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. The concern is that, that if we're not bothered about this work, then he says we're, we're living unproductive, unprofitable Christian lives. Marco Polo, you've probably heard of him, he's one of the most famous explorers throughout history. He discovered much of, the, much of China and all that sort of area. And it seems he inherited that sort of travel bug from his dad. In the year 1260, when Marco was just six years old, his father and his uncle traveled to Mongolia, part of modern-day China. And when they arrived there, the, the Mongol emperor showed a real interest in the Christian faith. And he asked the brothers to take a letter to the Pope of that day, requesting as many 100 missionaries to come to Mongolia to share the gospel amongst his subjects. What an invitation. So three years later, the brothers arrived home, uh, they delivered the letter, and two years later, they then returned backwards uh, to see the Mongol emperor. And did did they take those 100 missionaries with them? No, just two missionaries were sent because the church of that day felt they didn't have the resources. And even those two missionaries didn't even make it. They turned back shortly after their journey halfway through. You've got to think, what a tragedy. In the year 1260, the gospel could have spread like wildfire throughout China if only the church had dug deep and propelled out missionaries. The whole history of China could have changed. I guess this is the default option for many of us, for many churches and and us as individuals, to be self-interested, to care only for ourselves and our own, giving to only things that we personally benefit from. I was chatting about this passage yesterday at the men's breakfast, and and someone volunteered how, how he spends most of his days concerned about being productive and profitable at work, trying to sort of fine-tune his working rhythms to be as profitable and productive as, po- as possible. And then he said, you know, I've, I've never once considered whether I'm spiritually productive, spiritually profitable, and whether in response to God's grace I can be generous for the good of others elsewhere. He never thought of that. But the Spirit of God, he does that work in our hearts, doesn't he? He convicts us and then he he changes us by the gospel of grace. He lifts our eyes off ourselves and our own silly little internal debates and controversies and he lifts our eyes onto others, onto the spiritual needs of others. And I praise God that this is something many of us here at St. John's have learned. Uh, For your encouragement, I, I got this note last week in the post. 
I thought I'd read it to you. It's from our mission partners in Senegal. Hattie mentioned them earlier. David and Ruth Lowry, there they are. If you can see the photo, they're wearing those sort of African shirts. Never looks good, does it, when white people wear those African shirts? Um, it doesn't look right. Um, but I just want to read this to you for, for your encouragement. Dear Andy and all those at St. John's, Downshire Hill, greetings. We wanted to write to you and say a huge thank you to you as a church for taking the initiative to partner with us in our ministry by supporting us financially and in prayer. We can hardly say what a huge encouragement this has been to us this year. Your partnership has been yet another proof to us of God's grace, God's grace in provision of all our needs. Thank you. The Cretan church had never met Zenos and Apollos. You probably don't know David and Ruth, and I doubt you know anyone in the Caron tribe in Senegal. But spurning self-interest, because of the generous gift of grace that you have received, you have dug deep, and because of your generous provision and response, the people of the Caron tribe in Senegal are coming to hear about Jesus and are putting their faith in him. And on the day when you enter glory, you'll meet people in the Caron tribe and they'll say thank you thank you for giving thank you that I heard about Jesus because of your money see profitable ministry it propels and it provides so if you've not yet got involved in the grace of giving well, on your way out why not pick up this flyer it's called giving flyer and in here a number of good reasons why you might give and, and, and how you might do that practically I won't go, th go through that with you now but why not take that away read it pray through it and in response to God's grace give because profitable ministry propels and provides but finally we need to see what, what, what will motivate that and as Hattie mentioned earlier what, what really fires us up for mission and for giving to mission is God's grace we've got to keep stressing God's grace so look, look with me at verse 8 it's where our reading began and where our reading ended last week we've got a bit of an overlap but look at verse 8 this is a trustworthy saying this gospel of grace is a trustworthy saying and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. If you ever visited a British seaside town, you, you, you would have picked up a, um, or would have seen a stick of rock. I had a trouble explaining this to foreigners, what a stick of rock is. The Brits here will know what you A stick of rock is basically um, a candy cane. Um, in American parlance. It's a stick of pure sugar. They're horrible. I don't know why anyone buys them. But the distinctive thing about a stick of rock is that um, embedded in the, in the cane is, is writing. And often it'll say something about the area it's from, so Brighton Rock. So wherever you snap the, the rock in half, it will say the same message all the way throughout. Brighton Rock, Brighton Rock, Brighton Rock. Well, the letter to Titus is a bit like that. Wherever you break it, you get the same message. So look back at chapter 1 and verse 4. Halfway through, the letter begins, Grace and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Saviour. 
look to the very last verse and the last phrase, chapter 3, verse 15, grace be with you all. And then all the way through, as we've seen throughout this series, is grace, 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 which has been the motivation to live the good life. Whether that's personal godliness or ministry-mindedness, whether evangelism or generous giving, the message which will move our hearts to actually desire to do what is good is not law, it's not legalism, it's not guilt, it's the undeserved riches of God's grace. Now that's the message, if you're here, we heard last week how, how at one time we were foolish and disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, but But yet the grace of God appeared and he saved us, not because of the good things we have done, but because of his great mercy. His spirit was poured out on us generously. His son gave up his life for us on the cross generously. That's grace. I know a church minister who was approached after a service a bit like this and someone came up to him with a complaint. He said, look, why do you keep preaching about grace? It's grace this, grace that. It's getting boring. My friend said, because there's nothing else worth preaching about. Titus says, Paul says, stress these things. Keep stressing grace because it's the driver for the entirety of the Christian life. So as we close this letter and indeed this series, here's the question for us. If we've received this generous, undeserved kindness and love from God our Savior, what are we doing with it? Will you be generous in response to his generosity? Will you be productive in response to his grace? Will you engage in profitable ministry? Because, friends, grace is not an end in itself. Grace is not just a doctrine to have ticked in your head. Grace does good. Grace does good. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your grace, for your salvation. We praise you, Father, for your generosity, your love, your spirit whom you poured out upon us. And we ask, Father, in response to that grace, you would change our hearts, lift our eyes off ourselves, off our small parochial thinking, off our own individualistic and controversy-loving discussions. Lord, lift our eyes off ourselves and onto you and onto the needs of the world. We pray, Lord, this Mission Sunday, we would engage in profitable ministry. And we ask that for Jesus' name and his glory. Amen.